Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brethren. And uh, thank you to all the brethren who have made this holy day just run so smoothly. Uh, Everybody that's been on the stage and those that have been working behind the scenes, it's just beautiful to see when everything runs so smoothly in honor of our God, our Father, and our elder brother. I also want to bring you greetings from Ottawa, a very vibrant congregation there that's growing, and uh, they certainly wish that they could be together with all of us, and they're looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles for those of us who will be there And I do want to thank you as well, Brother Ray, behind the scenes, looking after all the sound. Uh, May God accept our worship, as Brother Murray pointed out to us. When I was 15 years old, I lived in an apartment complex called Main Square on the seventh floor, apartment 701. Next door to me was a lovely young lady named Razia Ali. And I was fond of her, and we talked quite a bit. And one day she confronted me, and she said, Adrian, you're lost. You don't know yourself. And she handed me an album, and she said, you need to listen to this. And the album was by an artist called Bob Marley. (laughs) At that time, my favorite artist was Supertramp. And I was listening to Crime of the Century, and she told me I need to listen to Bob Marley. And so I started to listen to this artist, and to say I was intrigued would be incorrect. I was obsessed. I had never heard anything like this. And I would rush home from school, and I would go straight to my stereo, plug in the headphones, and, and I think the young people don't understand that music wasn't mobile before. We had, we had to go home to listen to music. And I'd put on the headphones, and I would just listen to his lyrics. And the next day, I would go to school, and I'd ask my West Indian friends, what does he mean by this? And they'd explain it to me. And then I'd rush home, and I'd listen, and I'd try to see, okay, if, that, if he mean, I'd say, it can't be that. So I'd go back the next day, and I'd say, it can't be that, because he says this in another part of the song or in another song. One of these songs that I tried to figure out, I think you know where I'm going, was Exodus where he talked about the movement of Jah people, movement of God's people. And he said in this song, send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. Who is this second Moses? Decades later, when I finally figured this out, I realized that Bob Marley had no clue what he was talking about. (laughs) He was lost. But certainly, he was a mentor to me, and I am grateful to God for him and how God used him to bring me to the understanding that I have now. But if there's a second Moses, I think Bob Marley thought that he was the second Moses, and he would lead his people across the Red Sea. But if there is a second Moses, then there must be, by definition, a second exodus. And that's what I want to talk about today. We should all be focused on this second exodus. 
it should consume all of our attention. Because this second exodus is so great that the first exodus will pale into insignificance. We must understand this second exodus. To do that, let's begin with the first exodus, where we see the story of Israel really begins in Genesis 1.1, where God says, or Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very beginning, we see that the earth is special to God. That, that Moses juxtaposes the earth from the heavens to say that the earth is special. And then God creates this being and puts him on the earth, creates him from the earth, puts him on the earth, and he creates this being in his own image and in his own likeness, male and female. And he gives this being dominion over the earth. So not only is he to bear God's image, he is to rule over God's creation and bring that creation to its full potential. We know the story. He fails. He fails. And from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, we see the horrendous implications of this failure. We see the catastrophe of this failure. And then something special happens in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God steps in to redeem mankind through a man called Abraham. He makes a covenant agreement with this man, Abraham, to say, through you, all the families of the earth will be redeemed. So although Adam failed, God did not give up on mankind. He had a plan, or he has a plan, of salvation through this man, Abraham. And he makes this unconditional agreement with Abraham to save all mankind through him. That agreement cascades down to Abraham's descendants, namely Israel. And through Israel, God now enacts a second covenant agreement to say, through you, Israel, all mankind will be saved. In other words, I will fulfill the promise I made to Abraham through you, Israel. Let's see this in Exodus 12 now, where God has to, we'll pick up the story here in Exodus 12, Exodus 12, where God has to now move and act to save Israel in order to save the world. Because as Israel was multiplying in Egypt, the Pharaoh became concerned. In fact, he panicked and thought, if I leave this unattended, these people could, over, they could side with our enemies and they could overwhelm us. So Pharaoh acted to enslave Israel. Now that Israel is enslaved, they cannot save the world. And so God acts to free Israel. Exodus 12. And verse 12. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the power of Egypt, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So this is critical for us to understand in the first Exodus, that God's wrath is coming down on Egypt. It's coming down on everybody in Egypt, unless God sees the blood. If God sees the blood, that wrath will pass over that house. And that household then, the Passover, enables the Exodus. Without the Passover, there's no Exodus. The blood of the Lamb enables the Exodus. I will pass over you, and the plague, the plague of my wrath, shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 37. So first the Passover, then verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Notice, a mixed multitude went up with them also. So in the salvation of Israel, there's also a mixed multitude that comes up, that, that benefits from the Passover and the Exodus journey. And flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now, we need to understand that in saving Israel, God is now going to use Israel, but God doesn't use anybody without a covenant agreement. He puts a covenant agreement in place to which he is then bound. We'll see this in Exodus 19. Exodus 19 and verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and notice this, and brought you to myself. So the Exodus is not just about leaving Egypt. There's a reason why they have to leave Egypt, and that is to come to God, to worship God, as we heard in the offertory. They need to come to God to worship him. So they're leaving bondage. They're being liberated to come to God. And that's what this Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures for us. It's a feast of liberation. It's a feast of freedom. That's what this pictures. So he says in verse 5, So I brought you to myself. Now therefore, the, the, the consequence of bringing you out of bondage is this. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So this is now, the agreement with Abraham is unconditional. In you, all families of the earth will be redeemed. He is now going to do that through Israel. But the agreement with Israel is conditional. If they will obey his voice, and if they will keep the covenant, then they will be established as a special people. The whole earth belongs to God. And he chooses to educate the whole earth through Israel. Just as he chose to educate the whole earth through Adam. Adam was a king priest. Adam bore the image of God, and his purpose was to bring all mankind to God and also to rule over the creation and to help it realize its potential. 
he failed. This is now Israel's role. Israel will be set apart as a special king-priest nation. The earth is God's. He chooses who he wants to do whatever role. And he chooses Israel. So he says here, If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What kind of special treasure? Verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, king priests. You will bear the image of God and represent me to the whole earth. And a holy nation, a nation set apart. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, this covenant, we need to understand it really from two dimensions. Dimension one is, the covenant is a marriage agreement. It's a, Adam and Eve bore the image of God. That this union between the man and his wife is symbolic of the union between God and man. God wants to marry mankind and be in this faithful covenant agreement. And so look at Jeremiah 3. Verse 8. And while I'm here, I wonder if I could just ask for some water. Jeremiah 3 and verse 8. I, I, you know, I just had this nightmare. As I asked for water, I remembered when Jan asked everybody to come on stage, nobody moved. <laughs> Actually, it's great. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to die of thirst up here. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Look at Jeremiah 3. And in verse 8, we see something interesting. Israel has been chosen as this special nation. They've been brought out of Egypt. God has covenanted with them to use them in this king-priest way. And then in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, Jeremiah writes, Then I saw that for all the causes which backsliding Israel, these are the northern tribes, had committed adultery. So they were unfaithful in the marriage. They committed adultery. I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. So God and Israel were married, but Israel split into two, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And the northern tribes were full of adultery, idolatry, murder, filth. And so God divorced them. So I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, that's the southern nation, did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So Judah also committed adultery. And look at verse 14. Return, O backsliding children. He's speaking now to Judah. Israel is divorced. Says the Lord, for I am married to you. It's a marital agreement. I'm married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So what we want to see here is that the covenant is a marriage agreement. Is it good? We're all clear? God is married to Israel, and the northern tribes have been divorced, but there's still this union with Judah. In another place in Amos, he says, You only of all the families of the earth have I known. So God has this exclusive relationship with Israel. 
Nobody else. There is no relationship that God has with Gentiles. None. Zero. None. Zero. None. Zero. None. Zero. None. His only relationship is through Israel. And through Israel to bring all mankind to himself. The relationship with mankind is through Israel. It's not that God hates mankind. He loves mankind. And that's why he's entered into this marriage with Israel. So this story that we're reading in the Bible of Israel is a tragic love story that ends in triumph. It's tragic, but it ends in triumph. Now, in addition to being a marriage agreement, the covenant is also something else. Let's go to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, we just see here, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So this, again, is reinforcing this marital agreement. This is the I do. So will you take the Lord as your husband? Israel is saying, I do. I will. So all, all that the Lord has said, everything that he has said, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So they are now married. They are now bound with this blood of the covenant. Now, in addition to marriage or a marital covenant, it's something else. In addition to a marital agreement, it is also a real estate agreement. This is a real estate deal. You know, when we were selling our home, we lived in the country and we were selling our home, and it was a difficult home to sell. It's not something everybody would want. In fact, the real estate agent said to us, you're basically looking for yourself 20 years ago. You know, a a young couple that's starting out that wants to live in in the country. We got an offer within a week, and they came in, and the offer was a good offer. And so they wrote it up and they presented it to us, And it was conditional. It was conditional upon successful inspection. So as long as the inspection panned out, they would buy the home. We accepted the offer. So we were now bound legally by this agreement. If the inspection came through, both sides are bound. If the inspection did not come through, they are released because it was conditional. At the end of seven days, they wrote to us and said they didn't have time to organize the inspection. I think it was a short week that week. Could they have another seven days? Our real estate agent, so their real estate agent was, was uh, a nervous Nelly. He was just like, his, oh, this is so, oh, he was just, our real estate agent was just calm, cool, and collected. And she just said, refuse the offer. At the end of seven days, we are now legally able to come out of that offer. She said, if you extend it, they'll just tie your house up for another seven days, and you won't be any further ahead. So don't accept 
the, revi the revision to the offer. So we didn't accept it. Within 24 hours, we got another offer. Beautiful offer. Asking price, whatever date we wanted to move, they'd give to us. No conditions. They wanted this house. No conditions. We accepted that offer. With no conditions, there is nothing they can do to get out of the agreement. They are now bound by the agreement. So the agreement with Abraham was unconditional. God is bound. There's, there's nothing God can do unless he's a liar, which we know it's impossible for God to lie. He is bound by his agreement to Abraham. The agreement to Israel is conditional. God can get out of this agreement if they do not keep the terms and conditions. In addition to being a marriage agreement, it's also a real estate deal. Look at Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20 and verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. That the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. So this agreement involved land. Land that's promised, what we call the promised land. And Israel will be brought into this land on condition, and they'll stay in the land on condition that they do everything God has said. All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient, great. You'll stay in the land. If you don't, if you violate God's word, the land will vomit you out. You cannot stay in the land because it's a real estate deal, conditional upon, which makes sense. If this is going to be the priestly nation, if this is the nation that's going to lead all mankind to God, how can they be committing adultery? How can they be committing idolatry? How can they be committing murder and theft and be an example to the world? It, it doesn't make sense. They have to obey God and, and be that priestly nation. Now, why would the land vomit them out? Why such violent language? That if they defile the land, the land there's no staying. It's going to push them out. Numbers 35. Numbers 35. Why must they be holy in the land? Or, or why must the land expel them if they are not holy? It's a better question. Numbers 35, verse 34. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit. Don't do it. Don't defile the land which you inhabit. In the midst of which I dwell. The God of the universe dwells in this land. He has sectioned off this land and made it holy. He has made this people holy, and he's put them in the land. And, and our Pastor Murray has given a wonderful message, I think, two weeks ago, on what does it mean to be holy. We need to understand what it means to be holy. In, in a nutshell, it's a great sermon. We need to listen to this. Um, these are set apart. So he set apart this land for a special purpose. He set apart this people for a special purpose. 
He put them in that land. And now he tells them, I'm personally dwelling with you. The God of the universe is dwelling with Israel in this land. This is, this is profound. In the beginning, God created the heavens with a focus on the earth. It's not that he just created all the creation and it's all equal. Yes, he created the whole universe, but his focus is on the earth and a specific plot of land within the earth. And he himself is dwelling with the children of Israel on this plot of land as part of the redemptive process. If they are unholy, they cannot abide with him. The land will eject them. Now, let's talk about the second exodus. Let's talk about the second exodus and how, if God is not careful, pardon my language, if God is not careful, the second exodus makes him a liar. The second exodus is a challenge to God. Because if he's commanding his people to keep his word and keep the agreement, he also has to keep his word and keep the agreement. But this poses a dilemma for God. Let's begin to see this in Deuteronomy 30. There's something fascinating in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law. And these are the people who are going to go into the promised land. And God, or Moses, is reading to them the, the law. Because a lot of them hadn't heard it. They're, they've grown up now. They're going to inherit the land. He's giving them the law. But in Deuteronomy, he outlines to them all the blessings of obedience. If you do these things, here, here's all the blessings that will overtake you. But he also outlines the curses. If you don't obey, here's all the things that are going to happen to you. Okay? Notice now Deuteronomy 30. We're going to see something fascinating here. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, Moses writes, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things, not some of them, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Moses is saying you're going to inherit the land. You will obey the law. You will enjoy the blessings. But then you're going to disobey. And you're going to get the cursings. Okay? Moses, Moses is foretelling their disobedience. And the curse. which I, he, He's not going into the promised land. They're going in. And he knows what's going to happen. So you're going to get the blessing, but you're also going to get the cursings. And you call them to mind among all the nations where your Lord God drives you. Oh, the land is going to vomit you out. You're going into, okay, everybody, you're going into the promised land. When the land vomits you out, he said, I know you're not going to keep you. All that the Lord has said we will do, no, you won't. You're going to inherit the land and it's going to vomit you out. Because it's a real estate agreement. When you, when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, 
and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. So everything in Deuteronomy has to be obeyed in order for them to return and gather you again. This is the second exodus and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So it won't only be Egypt. So Egypt oppressed them, and they were released from Egypt. Now Moses is saying, all the nations are going to oppress you. But you're going to be brought back. There will be a second exodus. From all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, remember this verse, it's going to come back later. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there... The Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. So this exodus is going to be from all over the world. God is going to gather his people and bring them back. Verse 5. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land. It's all about the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you. And multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. As also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. Right in Deuteronomy, before they even inherit the promised land, Moses tells them there's going to be a second exodus. You're going to inherit the land. You're going to disobey your God. According to the terms and conditions, you're going to be ejected. But then he says, wherever you're ejected to, wherever you're oppressed and persecuted and slaughtered, from there... God is going to bring you back in this second exodus. But this presents a problem. Because, according to the terms and conditions, if they do not obey all the words of this law, they cannot dwell in the land. So how can God then, according to the faithfulness to the covenant, punish them according to the covenant, push them out of the land according to the covenant, and then if they have not obeyed every single word in Deuteronomy, how can God faithfully bring them back into the land? He would be violating the agreement. So this second exodus presents a problem. It presents a faithfulness problem. We cannot trust this God, this God of Israel. We cannot trust him if he just does what he likes. If he says something and then he abrogates it and changes his mind. We can trust the God of Israel the way Abraham trusted the God of Israel if we know it's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible. Whatever he says, he does. And, and if he gives us his word, he, he created the whole universe with his word. That's how powerful it is. We trust in his word. So we have to now reconcile what Moses prophesied of this second exodus with the fact that Israel must first obey every word in Deuteronomy. Then they can come back into the land. 
Ezekiel also prophesied of this second exodus, Ezekiel 36. In fact, Ezekiel really prophesies of this second exodus. But let's just pick it up in 36. Ezekiel 36, and if you look at verse 16, Ezekiel writes, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. This is how this, his wife was. She was impure. Therefore, because God is faithful to his word, Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land, according to the terms and conditions, and for their idols, which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, according to the terms and conditions. This, this is what the agreement said. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. We saw that in Deuteronomy. I judged them according to their ways and deeds. So God basically looked at their behavior, and then he looked at the terms and conditions of the agreement, and he did exactly what the agreement said according to their behavior. Verse 20. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. God is the God of Israel. So when Israel went into these nations, people looked and said, this is Israel. God is the God of Israel. These are the people that God has chosen. And they defiled his holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they've gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever I went. In other words, God, in his love for mankind, needs to protect his name. He's known as the God of Israel, and he needs mankind to respect him as the God of Israel. But Israel, in all of their profanity, they're not just defiling themselves, they're defiling his holy name. And they're presenting an obstacle in his redemption plan for mankind. These are the people of the Lord, yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore... Because of his holy name, and this is going to come to us later, but because of his holy name and, and the purpose behind his name and the power of his name in the earth, therefore say to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord. That's God's intent. That all the nations know. These, these human beings are made in God's image. They're acting like animals. No, that's an, that's an insult to the animal kingdom. They're acting like demons. And they're made in God's image. And God's intent is that they know him. 
and he is the God of Israel. What verse was I in? 23? I will thank you. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Instead of being king-priest to them, you're a profanity to them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, because he made this promise to Abraham. So this is going to happen, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Please don't read over this. The mechanism that God will use to save all mankind is when his name is made holy in Israel. That's how he will save mankind. That's how mankind will know that God is a God of his word, when he's made holy in Israel. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you, this is the second exodus, I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. God is going to do this. He promised this land to them. He wants to work through them. They're unfaithful. And yet he's saying, even though you're unfaithful, I'm going to be faithful to Abraham. And I am going to do this in you. But it presents a problem. Because God can't bring them into the land if they don't obey all the words of Deuteronomy. Then you shall dwell. Oh, sorry. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart. Actually, let's go to 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This has nothing to do with the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is not available to Gentiles. It's only to Israel. And God is going to put his spirit in Israel, put them in the land, and set them up as a treasure, as the priestly nation, to bring all mankind to him. Verse 28. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. But how? How can God do this and not violate his word? In Jeremiah 23, we see that not only is God going to do this, but he's going to do it on such a massive scale. Look how big this is going to be. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, look how big this second exodus is. It's massive. Massive. Jeremiah 23 and verse 7. This is how big it is. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. God says this, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel, from the land of Egypt. Throughout the Old Testament, God identifies himself as the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God himself talks of himself this way. It it, it was such a miraculous event of, of liberation that God doesn't want them to forget it. I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And now God himself is saying, you won't say this anymore. Because the second exodus is going to be so big that that first exodus will pale into insignificance. He says, the days are coming that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. Instead, this is what they will say. As the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. This is all the descendants. Israel is one man. All of his descendants that have been scattered throughout all, they should all be in the promised land, but because of their disobedience, they've been scattered all over the earth. All of them, alive and dead, are going to be brought back to the promised land. And we actually see this, the the beginning of this, with those that are living in the end time in Matthew 24. Look at Matthew 24. We see those that are living in the end time in Matthew 24. We see those that have died in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. When he says, son of man, this is the whole house of Israel. And he's going to bring all of them to the promised land. In Matthew 24, God is a God of his word. And this is what we need to understand. And this this is what is going to give us strength in the days ahead. That when we see that God has said something, we'll just stand firm. Because we're, we're going to stand on his word. Because he doesn't lie. And he always fulfills his word. In Matthew 24 and verse 22, a lot of confusion around this scripture. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Who is the elect? Who's the, there's only one elect. Israel. For Israel's sake, these days will be shortened. If Israel were to be wiped off the face of the earth, God would be a liar. Because there are promises that God has made to Israel that must be fulfilled. So Satan is going to do all he can to destroy all Israel. And by the way, all of you and me, we are Israel. God only has one relationship with mankind, and it's with Israel. And so the Holy Spirit, according to the agreement, came down upon Judah. And on Pentecost, as we're in the count now towards Pentecost, Judah received the Holy Spirit according to Ezekiel, according to Jeremiah. And then, in God's mercy, he he raised up Paul from the womb and used Paul to open the covenant agreement to Gentiles. So that Gentiles could be grafted into Judah And as Gentiles are being grafted into Judah, yes, God is also collecting the lost tribes of Israel. And they're coming through that thread because they were divorced. And the marriage is only now with Judah. So the only way they can come back is to come back through that marital relationship through Judah. And God is blinding partly Judah while he brings the Gentiles into Israel. So when we say the church, we're talking of Judah. We're talking of Israel. We are Israel. And Satan hates Israel. Satan wants to destroy all Israel to make God a liar. 
But for the elect's sake, there's only one elect. It's Israel. For Israel's sake, these days will be shortened. Verse 30. When they're shortened, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is now God's wrath upon everyone who is not covered by the Passover. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels. He's he's a God of his word. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Exactly what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 30. That when you go into the land, you're going to enjoy the blessings, then you're going to disobey God, then you're going to be scattered all over the earth, you're going to have many pharaohs abusing you, but then God is going to collect you from all four corners of the earth and put you back in the land. And the first fruits will include Gentiles. In fact, in the first Exodus, in the first Passover Exodus, there was a whole mixed multitude. God is not a respecter of persons. He's just working out a purpose. And we all have to settle down and be humble. And it's up to God. God has every right to choose Israel. And Israel is unfaithful. Israel is nasty. Israel is filthy. But God loves her. God loves her. And we're going to understand the love of God through his love for Israel. Now, how can God do this? I would take God to court and say, God, you violated your own word because you said they have to obey every word in Deuteronomy before you bring them back to the land. And now look, this exodus is so big that the first one pales into insignificance as you gather them from all over the world and bring them to the promised land. And they haven't obeyed Deuteronomy. What are you doing, God? And God would answer, Hold your horses. Look at Luke 9. Luke 9. Luke 9, in verse 29, Christ is praying. He's praying to the Father, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. So here the law and the prophets, both Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They were having a conversation who appeared in glory. What were they talking about? My translation here says they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word decease is the Greek word exodus. Moses had an exodus. Here... Moses was talking to Christ about his exodus. The word accomplish, pleru, is the word fulfill. Throughout Luke, Luke is all about, he's writing to Theophilus. 
and he's writing two volumes, Luke and Acts. And he's all about how Christ fulfills the scripture. So throughout Luke, he's using this Greek word pleru, how Christ is fulfilling. And here, Moses and Elijah are talking to Christ about this second exodus that he is going to fulfill at Jerusalem. We can't have an exodus without a Passover. So he has to shed his blood, the lamb, and that whoever comes under that blood, God's wrath will pass over them. And now they can be brought out of bondage into the liberty of Christ. So this is how God satisfies the conditions in Deuteronomy. Because when Christ came to earth, and we see this in Philippians 2, how he gave up the Godhead, and he became a servant, a slave on the earth. No reputation. But when he came on earth, He chose 12 disciples. So he chose his 12 disciples on one side and he on the other. Both represent Israel. The 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But they represent sinful Israel. Christ represents Israel. He represents faithful Israel. And Luke is careful to write constantly that Christ fulfills the scriptures. Christ himself is careful to do everything according to Deuteronomy. And when he completely fulfills the terms and conditions of Deuteronomy, he has every right legally to be in the land. Although he has every right to be in the land, instead he takes the punishment that sinful Israel deserves and he puts it on his back. And so he is slaughtered as sinful Israel should be slaughtered, And when that blood is shed, that blood now covers Israel. And they can now come into the land legally if they accept him as their savior. So this is how our God is faithful. Can I get a bigger amen? Amen. What a faithful God. Look now in Luke 4 when Christ begins his ministry. So unlike Matthew and Mark, who just go straight into uh, Christ's ministry after his genealogy, Luke spends time in 1 and 2 and 3 of Luke uh, setting up how Christ is fulfilling the various prophecies about himself. But his ministry then begins in Luke 4 with the conquest of the devil. Christ conquers the devil in Luke 4. But notice, let's not read over how he conquers the devil in Luke 4. Luke 4 verse 4. Jesus answered him saying, it is written in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This is how he conquered the devil. That that Adam and Eve, instead of living by every word of God, they lived by the word of Satan. And they came under Satan's authority. Israel, instead of living by every word of God, lived by the word of Satan. And came under his authority. Christ is careful to obey every single word of God. And that's how you have eternal life. That's how Christ has eternal life. Verse 16. Immediately upon the conquest of the devil. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as his custom was. 
And he went into the synagogue and stood up to read, and it was handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he, he went to the place, so he unscrolled it, and he goes to a very specific place. He goes to Isaiah 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is the second exodus. And what he's saying, we have to read Isaiah. What he's saying is, I am the humble servant prophesied by Isaiah. In Isaiah, let's just go to verse 52. He's come to liberate the captives. But how? They were waiting for their Messiah to come as king. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and crush their enemies. But there was a problem. And they were the problem. God couldn't just come and crush their enemies because he can't bring them into the land. Because they're sinful. So what they didn't understand was his, his priority was saving Israel. They, they, they thought his priority would be to crush their enemies. His priority was to save them. So he had to come as this humble servant, the Lamb of God, allow himself to be slaughtered so that he could redeem Israel. Only after redeeming Israel would he then pour his fury upon the earth. But they would be covered by the Passover blood. There is an order of operations. Amen. There is an order of... If you write down a formula, 2 plus 2 times 10. You would say, it's easy. 2 plus 2 is 4, times 10 is 40. And you'd be wrong. Because there's an order of operations. Those people who are maybe engineering-minded would know multiplication is a higher order operation than, than addition. So you do the multiplication first. 2 times 10 is 20. Then you add the 2. God has an order of operations. When, when, you, when you get dressed, there's an order of operations. If I came up here and I didn't understand order of operations, maybe you would see my underpants over my pants. That would violate the order of operations. Unless I'm Superman, then that's okay. But there's an order of operation. They're called underpants because they go under pants. And I think sometimes our young people, we need to give them some basic education. But there's an order of operations. God saves Israel first. When Israel is redeemed and set up as the king priest, through Israel he saves all mankind. This is the beauty of the marriage agreement. Isaiah 52 and verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. This is Zion that's been persecuted and oppressed. Put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So we see beginning in Isaiah 52 here, the second exodus begins. There's a liberation process. We see in Isaiah 53, actually 52 in verse Six, therefore people shall, my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks, behold it is I. And in verse seven, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The God of Israel reigns. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He came to earth and he went upon the mountains, and this is what he proclaimed. And this is what he was proclaiming in, in Luke 4. After conquering the devil, he quoted Isaiah to say, I am this anointed servant that is going to redeem Israel through my blood. In Isaiah 53, this is so unbelievable that in verse 1, the prophet writes, Who has believed our report? Nobody will believe this. That the God of the universe came down as a baby. He, he was a baby. Who's going to believe this report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is what God uses to save Israel. And he's saying, who will believe this? And he goes on to then explain how he is just unrecognizable because he takes the form of this humble servant. But in Isaiah 60, We really need to read this whole section of Isaiah from 40 to the end. But we're the same way Christ just dipped in, we just have to dip in. Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. You do not, you do not mess with Israel. Yes, God will punish them, but he's going to restore them. All those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And this includes us. We are Israel. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. This is going to happen. And they shall call you the city of the Lord. Jerusalem will be called the city of the Lord. Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence. The name of Israel will be an eternal excellence. Forever and ever and ever, God will be known as the God of Israel. A joy of many generations. And then he goes on here to say in verse 16, You shall drink the milk of Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. I'm your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This exodus is so big, it goes beyond human beings. Look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1 and in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us us is Israel. Us never refers to the Gentiles. Us is Israel. Who's qualified us, Israel, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. This is the second exodus. We are the first fruits of this second exodus. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. Satan was ruling over us. He had dominion over us. We've been delivered from this. And he's translated us 
into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is this exodus. And by the way, there is a baptism process through this and a, and a giving up of sin and a deleavening process in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice verse 15. He, not Adam, Adam failed. He succeeded. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Of all creation. Not just of human beings. Of all creation. Christ is beginning a rebirthing. When Christ came up out of the grave, that was the first birth of the rebirth of the whole creation. There's going to be a new heavens and and everything is going to be reborn. But it began 2,000 years ago when Christ was born from the grave. Then we will follow. Then the fall harvest. Then new heavens and new earth. Everything is going to be made new. And it began 2,000 years ago. Now, understanding how big this exodus is going to be, this, this liberation from bondage, this, this Passover exodus, with our, led by the second Moses, Christ, what is our role and responsibility? Let's take a moment and understand our role and responsibility. It's not, it's not just all benefit. Right? We don't just put our feet up and then we just benefit. There's a responsibility. 1 John 5. And just before I go here, just take a moment and just talk to a neighbor about what you've heard so far and and what you understand of the second exodus. So just take a minute and do that. Okay, let's, let's continue in 1 John 5. So we are part, we, we are the first part of this second exodus. We have been liberated from the bondage of the devil. And the reason for that is we've been grafted into Israel. So, so God is acting first to save Israel. He's going to collect Israel from the four corners of the earth when he returns. He's going to establish Israel in 
Jerusalem. And from there, the whole earth is going to look to the God of Israel. So in 1 John 5, in verse 19, he says here, We know that we are of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is, this is reality. We're here understanding this is holy time, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, the whole world is in bondage. And we heard the, the lady singing here, if you ask me to preach to a dying world, I'll go, but I cannot go alone by the power of Christ in me. This is our responsibility. The whole world lies in bondage. It's our responsibility to proclaim the good news. That's what Christ did when he was on earth. He proclaimed the good news. That's what we must do. Proclaim the good news. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. That's what he's done. That we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So we heard in the operatory there are many ways that we can worship God. There are also many ways that we can worship idols. And he says here, keep yourself from idols. Political correctness is an idol. If we are afraid to proclaim the truth of God because it's politically incorrect, we are bowing down to the devil. Political correctness comes out of the mind of demon-possessed people. And we need to understand uh, Marxism and Islam. And the collusion between Marxism and Islam and how it's creating this atmosphere where we cannot speak. And every single totalitarian government begins by robbing the people of their freedom to speak. So this M103 is the beginning of totalitarianism. We must speak truth to power. That is our job. And to be fearful is to bow down to the creation. If I'm afraid to speak the truth, it's because I'm afraid of a man. And that's creation. I cannot be afraid of creation. Oh, but they might not like it. That's their problem. My job is to proclaim the word of God. And I'm so glad to hear the amens. Look now at Luke 10. In Luke 10 and verse 2, Christ says to them, the harvest truly is great. So part of this first wave of the exodus, Christ is saying there truly is a great harvest. We're going to have this spring harvest followed by a fall harvest, and this is the second exodus. And it's going to be so great, we won't speak of the first exodus anymore. It's so great, but... The laborers are few. There are not many laborers. Therefore, our responsibility is to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This environment is a politically correct environment, meaning it's hostile to the gospel of Christ. So when he's saying to pray for more laborers to go into the harvest, he's asking us to pray for people who will be spirit-empowered and who will not back down to the face of evil, who will look evil in the face and say, Christ is Lord. 
without fear, without apology. Then he says to them, you need to pray for this. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Wolves wolves devour. So in case you didn't understand the job description, here it is. So look at your resume and see if you qualify. And what needs to be on your resume is, Holy Spirit filled. will go where he sends me. Then this work can get done. This, the history says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Oh, that my blood could proclaim Christ for what his blood has done for me. Or, oh, you mean I might get hurt? You mean I could lose my job? You mean I could lose my life? I need to rethink this. I didn't know that this is what I signed up for when I was baptized. Because the scripture says, brother shall betray brother. That the wolves are going to become so powerful and the people of God so fearful that brother will betray brother. And we only have to study the history of Islam and the history of communism to see how brutal these totalitarian governments are. And that's what's descending upon us now. That's what Justin Trudeau is ushering into Canada. That's what Barack Obama was trying to usher into America. That's what the United Nations is all about. There is a collusion between the Marxist left and Islam. And it is horrible. And someone needs to stand up and tell them Jesus is Lord. But we can't do it on our own strength, the, the special music. We can't do it on our own strength. That's why we must pray to the Lord of the harvest. Look at Luke 11. He tells them to pray to the Lord of the harvest. In Luke 11, this is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. It's not. Luke 11, verse 1, is the Lord's Prayer. Now it came to pass as the Lord was praying in a certain place. That's the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord was praying, and as they overheard the Lord's Prayer, when he stopped, one of the disciples, probably Peter, said to him, Lord, can you teach us to pray? Because John taught his disciples. So you told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest. As you were doing the Lord's Prayer, there's something different in the way you pray. Can you teach us to pray? So he says, yes. When you pray, say, Our Father. Gentiles are not included. Israel is God's firstborn. Recognize that God is your father. And talk to him. Don't, it's not all ritual. It's a relationship. Talk to him as your father. Our father. In heaven. God is in heaven. He's not on the earth. But he created the heavens on the earth. And he's coming to earth. Holy be your name. Code. For those who understand. My name shall be made holy in Israel. So when we say holy be your name, we're praying that God restore Israel. So that the world can understand that God is the God of Israel. My name shall be hallowed in Israel. Holy be your name. Thy kingdom come. Israel will be established as king priests. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his will is done in heaven. 
there's a demon on earth and an army of demons on earth, wolves on earth, that are negating his will, trying to kill Israel. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our view, because we understand that these two kingdoms are colliding and Satan's kingdom is being crushed, we have a view that is a kingdom view. And we're not going to worry about what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and what clothes we're going to put on. We're going to trust you as we go out as lambs among wolves to give us our daily bread. They're threatening to fire me if I preach Christ. Give us our daily bread. They're threatening to kill me. Give us our daily bread. You you are our sustainer, and we trust you. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. We don't see human beings as enemies. Satan is the enemy. Human beings are just fallen creatures. We forgive them. Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do as we preach the gospel. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This cannot mean don't bring us into trials. This cannot mean don't allow us to be killed. Christ said, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. What this means is don't allow us to succumb to the devil's empire. Don't don't let us betray you. Help us to remain faithfully planted in your kingdom. That's what we must pray. So much so that Luke doesn't even finish the prayer. We heard Landon, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, amen. Luke cuts it off and says, I'm going into detail on the commentary that Christ had on what it means to be delivered from the evil one. And if you read this passage carefully, he's telling them that you must pray for the Holy Spirit for the laborers that God will send into the harvest. And if you ask God for the Holy Spirit, he will give it. Because he's a loving father. That even if you went to your neighbor, and your neighbor had poor character, and you went to your neighbor because you have a guest, somebody showed up unannounced, and you knock on your neighbor's door and you say, can you give me some loaves so I can feed my guest? The neighbor says, it's all locked up, I'm sorry, I'm in bed, go away. The neighbor will not come down, even though he's my neighbor, he's my friend. But if I keep banging, and I keep banging, and I give him no peace, he'll finally come down. So what we learn from this is, first, we don't pray for ourselves. I'm not banging on the bread so that I can eat, or banging on the door. I'm banging on the door because I have a guest. I was praying for more laborers to be sent in the harvest, and the laborers showed up. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. And if they go among wolves without the Holy Spirit, not only will they be slaughtered, they'll be betrayers. They will betray me. They'll betray Christ. So I'm going to the Father, asking for the Holy Spirit to be given to to my guest, who I prayed to come. Then he says, in verse 11, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... Will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? What he's saying here is, when the serpent comes, and remember, Luke wrote Acts as well. So he's writing to Theophilus, and he's getting Theophilus to understand why the apostles preach so boldly. Acts is all about Pentecost. 
receiving the Holy Spirit, and preaching the gospel with boldness. And Paul got into big trouble. And Luke is writing to Theophilus to help him understand the thinking of the apostles, and specifically the thinking of Paul, and why they're bold. That even though they're told not to preach, they preach and they're slaughtered. Every one of them, except for John, who was exiled. So the prayer, the prayer is not, oh, I don't want to be slaughtered. Keep me from, the, from trouble. It's keep me from betrayal. And keep my brethren who I've been praying to be sent into the harvest, keep them from betrayal. Keep them in the kingdom of God and they don't go to the kingdom of Satan. So when that serpent comes, we were praying for the Holy Spirit, and instead we get a serpent. We must see beyond that. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. When the serpent comes, when the wolves come, when the lions come and they tear and they devour, and we're here in sadness, as the early church gathered with grief over the loss of Stephen, we rejoice. Because he was kept from the evil one. And he'll be brought into the land. And he proclaimed the truth. Where is our courage? We must pray for the Holy Spirit. There's only bravado without the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, there's true love and passion for God. Love and passion for Israel. Love and passion for mankind. And we stop serving idols. Can you believe at the the last terror attack in London at Westminster, the heart of democracy is what they're striking symbolically, that there was some guy there with all the carnage in the background taking a selfie. This is our culture. It's narcissism. Look at me. Look at me. We have to go beyond narcissism. And we're just look at Christ. Look at Christ. Let's conclude in Romans 8. Jordan Peterson is a professor at the University of Toronto who stood up to the administration who were forcing all the professors to use gender, whatever they call them, pronouns. So to be politically correct, you can't say he and she. You're supposed to say Z and they. And and he just said, no. If it looks like a man, I'm saying he. And if it looks like a woman, I'm saying she. He got into big trouble, and he would not back down. He would not back down. He's now an international celebrity. And the university has said, we don't want this going any further. You're free to do whatever you want. If he can have that kind of courage, what about us? He told a story, it's a children's story, called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. And he was telling it because there's a moral behind it. He said that little Billy Bixby went up to his room, and on his bed, there was a little dragon. And so he went over to the dragon, and he patted its head, and it started to wag its tail. And he thought, that's cute, it's a little dragon. So he went downstairs, and he told his mom, Mom, there's a dragon in my room. She said, Billy, there's no such thing as dragons. And he said, no, no, there's a dragon in my room. Billy, there's no such thing as dragons, and that's final. Okay, there's no such thing as dragons. So he went back up to his room. And he saw the dragon on his bed, and he ignored it, because there's no such thing as dragons. He got changed, and when he looked again, the dragon was a bit bigger. 
First it was the size of a kitten. That was the size of a dog. That's funny, but there's no such thing as dragons. So he went downstairs to have his breakfast, and he sat at the table, and the dragon followed him. And it got bigger, and it sat on the table. And he said, Mom, she said, there's no such thing as dragons. So they ignored the dragon, and Mom made the pancakes, and she put them on the table. And before Billy could eat the the pancakes, the dragon ate them. But there's no such thing as dragons, so Mommy made another batch of pancakes. And she put those down. And, and Billy could hardly get one before the dragon ate those as well. All the, now all the batter is gone. But at least Billy had one. He said he didn't care. He just wanted one anyway. When he went back upstairs to get ready for school, the dragon got even bigger. It got so big that it now occupied every room in the house. It got so big that its head was sticking out the front door and its tail was sticking out the back. Mom says there's no such thing as dragons, so she had to still clean, but she got climbed out of windows and into other windows in order to do the cleaning because there's no such thing as dragons. A bakery truck went by, and the dragon just loved the smell of the bread, and it couldn't resist, so it got up, and it chased the truck, and it took the house with it. The mailman saw the house going by, and he thought, I've got mail for that house, and he started to run after the house, but he couldn't keep up. When the husband came home, he saw the mailman, and he wondered, my house is gone. And the mailman said, yes, I'll go that way. So the husband ran after the house, caught up to it, saw this dragon. And mom and the boy, Billy, were up in the, the room explaining to him there's no such thing as dragons. Finally, Billy said, well, there must be a dragon. So he patted the dragon on the head. It started to wag its tail. And then it started to shrink. And he started to pat it more. And it shrank all the way down to its original size. And mom finally said, It's nice to have a pet dragon. I'm telling you, brethren, we are lambs sent among wolves. Life as we know it is changing. You can say, oh, there's no problem, there's no problem. I'm telling you on the authority of the Bible, we have a big problem. We have a big problem. The Marxists are colluding with the Muslims, and both bring only slaughter, torture, persecution, and everything filthy. And we must stand up as lambs and preach the truth. Because this second exodus is about liberation from the devil. These are just human beings. They don't know what they're doing. They're brutal. They're they're in in the claws of the devil but they don't know what they're doing. We have to see beyond this. We are part of something grand. So grand, we will not talk of the first exodus anymore. Let's conclude in Romans 8. As you're turning there, I will quote my earliest spiritual teacher, the accidental theologian, Bob Marley. Men and people will fight you down. Tell me why. When you see God's light. Let me tell you, if you're not wrong, everything is all right. Everything is all right. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, 
then heirs. God came to earth and inherited the land. And with that, the whole universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. The scripture says that what's coming is so brutal, Christians will not suffer with him. Many, the love of many will wax cold. Many will betray one another. We cannot let this be us. We must stand with Christ. We must stand with one another. Because if we suffer with him, we will be joint heirs, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider, when Paul kind of put the calculus together, he said, you know what? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. This exodus is so big. It's not just about liberating human beings. It's about liberating the whole creation from bondage. That's why we won't talk of the the first creation is like petty cash compared to a massive fortune. The earnest ex, the earnest expectation of the creation, the heavens and the earth eagerly waits for the revealing of you, Israel, the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, allowed it to be subjected because of the hope of Israel. Because the creation itself also, in the second exodus, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The whole creation is waiting for this second exodus. The Passover has already happened. We take that blood. The fury of God is coming. It will pass over us. And then that's the beginning of this new creation. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? We need this hope. And we can have this hope because we can trust God's word. God is a God of his word. He satisfies every condition in detail of everything he says. But if we hope for what we do not see, the What we're going to see, brethren, is wolves. We are lambs, like Christ. Satan's empire is conquered with love. He throws his worst at Christ, and Christ remains silent because of his love for Israel and his love for all mankind. When he throws his worst at us, we follow Christ. And we have this love of Christ, this love of Israel, and this love of mankind. So when we see the wolves, let's see beyond the wolves. Let's fulfill our part. And let's say that this hope that we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. 
This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.